You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 12th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Putin shakes up his top military personnel again. The Brexit issue still causing a headache for European leaders and why Italy's so-called Netflix of culture is a flop. I'm Emma Nelson and the Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests Lizette Raymer and Simon Brook will take a look at some of the day's biggest stories, including the latest round of Brexit talks in Northern Ireland and we'll hear a dispatch from our correspondent in New York. So stay tuned because all that and more is coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Welcome to Studio One. Joining me around the table, as I've just mentioned, Lizette Raymer, uh, Europe correspondent for News Hub New Zealand. Hello, Lizette. Hello. Happy New Year. I don't, when do we stop saying Happy New Year? I think we can make it last. Okay, we're, we're stretching this little fellow out, <laughs> aren't we? Um, and Simon Brook, freelance journalist and communications consultant. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you. Let's keep going and people tell us, oh, yeah. what are you talking about? Yes, when do we stop? Do we stop when we see the daffodils? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, think, fine. Yeah. We'll keep going. We need cheering up, don't well, we? Because we are still catching up with each other since whatever happened in the last month. It was all a bit of a blur. Um, and you, but you went on big travels, didn't you, Lizette? I just ducked over to New York for Christmas. Why not? I love that ducking yeah, over. Ducking over. Well, it's much closer than New Zealand, so it was my it was my in between option as opposed to taking the. 36-hour journey home, I went to friends and family in New York. I suppose it is that question of scale. I mean, if if you're British, you tend to get cross if you have to drive more than an hour and a half. But if if your nearest and dearest are literally on the other side of the world, quick trip across the Atlantic. A duck. Walk in the park. Walk in the park. How about you, Simon? Any walks in the park? Probably just down to the supermarket, actually, exactly. I have to say. That's the limit of my uh, my ambitions. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose, as you say, you'd get a different perspective, don't you? You know, sort of what's six, seven, eight hours, is it? Or something? It's nothing, isn't it, it compared is to only, 22? Yeah, six or seven. It goes so Skip fast. Skip across the pond. It is, nothing. truly. You don't even need a big plane for that, do you? No. Two movies, no. you're there. Two movies and you're there. I like the idea of two movies and you're there. I'm going to measure my life out in movies. Um, We'll talk to you both in a moment about the day's biggest stories, but let's address a a, a big story that was breaking in Moscow a a little while ago. Um, All change again among Russia's military top brass as their war against Ukraine is showing no signs of victory. Well, remember General Sergei Sorovkin. The mention of his name was intended in October to prompt fear and horror. After all, he played an instrumental role in Russia's operations in Syria, during which Russian combat aircraft caused widespread devastation in rebel-held areas. Well, he is no longer in charge of Moscow's campaign in Ukraine. He will now serve as a deputy to the new man at the top, Valery Gerasimov. Well, Dr Lucy Burge is a Russian politics specialist at the University of Manchester, and she joins me on the line now. Good evening to you, Lucy. Good evening. Lucy, just explain to us, before we move on to who the, the new man in town is, Valery Gerasimov, let's just recap by examining the two months that General Sergei Surovkin spent at the helm. When his name was mentioned two months ago, everybody thought this will be a, a huge, violent and brutal change of the game in Ukraine, but it didn't happen. Yes, exactly. So when uh, General Armageddon, as he's known, or Sergei Serovikin, was appointed as uh, Russia's top commander uh, in October, this sent a sort of a clear signal 
to the West and Ukraine on, on the one hand, but crucially to the, the hardliners inside Russia, who had up to that point been very critical of the, um, the Russian Ministry of Defence's prosecution of the war, you know, amidst embarrassing retreats um, and setback after setback. Um, uh, and this, the signal was that they were, you know, perfectly prepared to deploy brutal force against civilians, you know, by deliberately bombing civilian targets and ramping up attacks on Ukraine's energy grid uh, going into the winter. Um, but as we've seen, you know, this particularly brutal mode of warfare that Serevikin is famed for terrorizing civilians, you know, it inflicts great damage and suffering, but actually changes very little on the ground. And since uh, on his watch, uh, Russia's lost even more territory, um, namely the southern city of Kherson, um, of huge strategic importance. And then on New Year's Day, um, Ukraine unleashed a deadly strike on uh, army barracks in the town of Makivka in Donetsk, um, which has led to recriminations inside the Kremlin. But placing him at the top of the pyramid essentially has not changed Russia's fortunes on the battleground. Let's just uh, just examine briefly the the, the target of the barracks in Makivna, Makivka. Um, there was an enormous amount of an enormous number of casualties on the Russian side, and then there were suddenly these internal recriminations when you had Russian war correspondents, the likes of Semyon Pegov, who started to be critical about what was going on and questioning uh, lines. How much did that sort of see the end of uh, the previous leader and, and call and, and precipitate a change? I think it's fair to say it's played a role. Um, and the bombing in Makivka um, was particularly significant and embarrassing for the Kremlin because, I mean, of course, an attack like that is undesirable in any war, but those particular barracks were housing um, recently mobilized soldiers who incidentally were blamed for the attack um, by the Kremlin as apparently they'd been using mobile phones having despite you know having been forbidden from doing so um, and a lot of the uh, the hardline um, Russian um, nationalists who spend a lot of time posting on telegram about these very issues were were aghast at this um, this accusation by the Kremlin. Um, but the reason it was particularly significant was this is the largest death toll that the the, the Kremlin has acknowledged publicly since the war started. Um, they've said that there were 89 dead, and the real figure is likely to be you know four or five times that. But as rumours abound now about a potential uh, full-scale mobilisation in Russia, you know the fact that mobilised recently mobilised soldiers were were killed is obviously not a brilliant look. So tell us about um, Valery Gerasimov, a man who arguably inherits the largest poison chalice on earth. <laughs> yes, that's one way of putting it. So uh, Valery Gerasimov is, is a sort of old guard establishment figure who, unlike Sergei Shoigu, the, the head of the Russian Ministry of Defence, actually does have a military background. He was the commander of the, um, the 58th Army in the North Caucasus military district during the Second Chechen War uh, between 2001 and 2003. And then he became the commander of Leningrad military district and then um, Moscow central military dis district. He then was promoted to chief of, of the general staff um, and deputy defense minister in 2012. So he's you know, had a high rank in the Russian army for most of Putin's time in power. 
And because of that and because of, you know, embarrassing setbacks um, and poor logistical decisions, you know, that Russia's exhibited throughout the war, he's invited much criticism um, in the last year. And much of that has been directed at him from Russia's hardliners, so Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, Ramzan Kadyrov, and then some of the, um, the ultra-nationalist uh, Russian uh, bloggers, who one of whom you mentioned, um, who spent a lot of time on Telegram um, talking about the war. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily see it as a promotion or a demotion of either uh, Serovikin uh, or um, Gerasimov. It's, it's sort of a reshuffle. Um, and I doubt it will change again much on the ground. What does it say, though, about the state of le- leadership inside the Kremlin? So I would, I, I think there's a tendency sometimes to overinterpret, um, you know, a change in personnel um, and to, you know, the, to see it as, as sort of indicative of a, you know, of a schism or a, a, a new master plan or a strategy. That said, I think the timing is interesting because um, there's been very heavy fighting in the eastern um, in, uh, town of Solidar in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. Uh, where there are salt mines, where which is where it gets its name from. And yesterday, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, claimed that his forces were um, close to, to taking it, almost in command, command and control of Solidar. Now, that claim was quickly refuted by um, the Russian Ministry of Defense, who, who said that um, fighting was still going on. So, you know... One could see the fact that um, Gerasimov was quickly after that named the new overall commander of, of Russia's special military operation. One could maybe see that as a sign um, that actually, you know, the Ministry of Defense is in charge of this, of executing this war effort, um, you know, not this non-state actor, Evgeny Prigozhin, although his forces clearly are um, playing an important role in Russia's uh, military strategy. Lucy Birch, Dr Lucy Birch, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson, and around the table, Lisette Raymer and Simon Brook. Welcome. Let's move on to, well, Brexit. One of the first comments made around this very table on the morning of the Brexit vote in 2016 was, you'll never solve Northern Ireland. Six, nearly seven years on, we are still examining this issue. During Brexit negotiations, several plans were suggested to try to address the issue of not having a physical border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, even as the United Kingdom split from the European Union. The deal that was struck at the end of 2020 has come up against sticking point after sticking point, not to mention quite a lot of political leaders and a healthy, hefty helping of bad faith. But could we be looking at progress? Um, Lizette, let me come to you first. Remind us as, as to how bad the situation we are in at the moment. What's not working? And I do. <laughs> what, what's working? Well, this is the whole thing. The, the whole issue when you start talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol is you immediately get in, stuck into the weeds, isn't it? And this, this is effective, effectively its biggest problem. Absolutely. It's incredibly you know, detailed down to the nitty gritty. But this is, as you say, a long standing issue. And I think. Even seven years on, I don't think, despite the new headlines talking about you know supposed 
progress being made, that much progress has been made at all. They're talking now that there's a new agreement to share IT systems, which to me seems a little bit superficial, really, when you're talking about you know, the, the trade of goods, the, the establishment of a border between UK and Northern Ireland is always going to be intolerable for those in Northern Ireland and really hard to compromise on or get around a negotiating table and have anything to offer in return. Nonetheless, you do have to say that you know, the fact that they weren't actually sharing trade data gives you suggestions to how, how deep this rift was between, between the European Union and the United Kingdom when Brexit occurred. So to actually have a, a computer <laughs> connected to two sides sharing data, Simon, does suggest that this is we're not politically in a situation where we have been in the past where there has just been nothing but negative talk. Yeah, I think this is an interesting example of how Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is trying to reset the relationship with the EU. Obviously, this has been a sticking point. It's been incredibly difficult. And as you say, immediately, as soon as Brexit occurred, people thought this is going to be one of the most difficult problems they have to solve. So I think the fact that um, the the government, uh, the UK, the Westminster government, has made great efforts here to improve the situation. And I think the fact that, I mean, you're talking about computer sharing data and stuff like that. I think what's quite interesting about the statement that we're seeing from uh, from these meetings is that it is pretty detailed. It does look like they really are putting things into place that could make a system work rather than shouting from the sidelines or, you know, expressing sort of platitudes the way politicians do very often uh, in these situations. It does look like they are giving some kind of... Um, with the IT systems and stuff, they're actually putting some building blocks into place that can uh, make this happen. Uh, but as I say, I think for the bigger picture, really, it's an effort by Rishi Sunak, uh, James Cleverly, the the new UK Foreign Secretary, to say to Brussels, uh, to Europe, to EU partners, listen, we're going to talk to you. The the time of Boris Johnson, the Liz Truss, megaphone diplomacy, those days are gone. Reset. We want a good relationship with you. Well, you say that, but yesterday when uh, the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly was having his meeting, uh, they unexpectedly... Um, barred uh, the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, from the, the the government talks with uh, the Northern with the, you know with the, with the Northern Irish uh, trade ministers. Um, now Sinn Féin is the is the biggest party in. Hang on a minute, I've got to get this right. Um, it is the biggest party in the mothballed Stormont. Uh, um, Stormont. Um, you know, the building, the, the parliament. Um, so we already have, when I say mothballed, it's an indication that Stormont is not functioning well in any way. And internal politics there are bad enough. But to have the British Foreign Secretary bar arguably a key player in all this doesn't actually... The megaphone is still there, isn't it? Yes, the argument is, is that that's a member technically of the EU Parliament, uh, an EU Parliament. So for that reason, they didn't need to be at an internal roundtable discussion. But it speaks to the deep-rooted issue here that everyone has such strong, strong, long-lasting opinions on it. And as time goes on, we're seeing that people are becoming even more stubborn, it feels like. We've seen that with the mothball you know, they're not even establishing a functioning parliament at the moment because of the Northern Protocol, which is obviously also putting pressure on the UK to do something about it. But you see, Cleverly's gone there and instantly the conversation has 
the conversation of what the solution could be has been overridden and overshadowed by the internal squabbling. Because we can immediately say that Sinn Féin is going to say absolutely no to anything that comes up because they weren't allowed to play. When we when we see now, though, the opposition leader, uh, Westminster's opposition leader, Keir Starmer, being in Northern Ireland today, he, big on the internet, pictures of him at Stormont, says a breakthrough needs to be made on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Meeting today with the Brexit Working Group, I made it clear that a negotiated settlement between the UK, Ireland and the EU is the only way forward. Labour will always work to preserve peace. Um, there is political capital being made by the Westminster opposition, isn't there, Simon? Yeah, I mean, this is um, something obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, Labour has to do, which is to say to people, listen, we could handle Brussels, we could handle uh, EU relations with the UK more effectively than this government. Um, it's quite a subtle thing that Labour has to do because obviously a lot of their supporters we know would like them to say scrap Brexit we're going to throw ourselves back into the EU and you know we're going to apply to to join but of course what Keir Starmer is very much aware of if that if he does a complete U-turn on that yes he'll appeal to some uh, Labour voters but he's going to upset a lot of that red wall uh, electorate people who you know backed the Tories last time and have been deserting Labour over the last few years so he's 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 walking a tightrope really on this but I think it's an interesting example again of how you've got two technocrats Rishi Sunak, uh, Keir Starmer neither of them are going to sort of make you know come up with big ideas if you like but their whole idea for both of them is the idea of of working, making things work practically uh, in a sort of way that, uh, uh, you know, that's going to produce results rather than the kind of Boris Johnson, you know, uh, grandstanding, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think I have to say, uh, I'd certainly agree that uh, it was a big mistake of the, the British not to involve um, uh, Sinn Féin and obviously uh, Mary Lou MacDonald and, uh, the, and uh, Michelle O'Neill, the, the leaders of Sinn Féin, have made a big thing of this. And, and rightly so. Um, they are arguably old enough to know better, we might suggest. So what we're going to move on to now is some quite astonishing political news coming out of the United States uh, involving you know, a city leader who happens to be a little bit younger than the people we have been talking about. Um, the question that needs to be asked now is what were you doing when you were 18? Because oh, for gosh. those of us <laughs> who have any recollection of that period in our lives, and I know that Simon, you and I have talked about what we were both in Manchester at around the same time and gosh, we had some late nights yes. apart though. Yeah. Um, Do we really want to share this amount? No, so, yeah. I, well, frankly, we can't remember. That, but I, I wonder whether at that time when we were 18, we were facing the realistic prospect of running a town. Um, let me tell you about Jalen Smith. He is in that position. He's just been elected mayor of the small city of Earl in the US state of Arkansas. Uh, Earl is a place reportedly in real need of fresh blood. Um, it doesn't have a supermarket yet. Um, Mr. Smith says he has the option to be great at home. Um, were you contemplating greatness when you were 18? Oh, I was really contemplating it. I wasn't actually acting on it. <laughs> Lying in bed thinking Dreams about it. Dreams are free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Drinks are free. Okay, well, they don't even have a supermarket no. in no. Earl, so maybe Dreams are free. Oh, Dreams are, we're not quite so free, no, but we'd still embrace That's a wham song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so just tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously we'll ask you what you're doing when you're 18. Um, but the fact is that we have an 18-year-old man who's, who's basically... Come up and said, right, we need to pull this town by its, up by its socks. Earl is not doing well. The majority of the bright young things are leaving. He's decided that he wants to fix it. Um, Simon, you've worked in political communications uh, for an extremely long time, although you still are only 18, obviously. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, 
Young at heart. Young at heart. Uh, what happens in politics when you get a, a, a sort of a, a fresh shoot coming coming up? Do people encourage it or do people just generally go, gosh, you're a bit of a know-it-all? Well, I think, yeah, a bit of a know-it-all, a bit of a nerd, uh, you know, uh, all, all that kind of language, really. It, I mean, it's interesting because normally I have this big thing, you know, there's a great celebration, for instance, here in the UK, where uh, in 2019, at our last election, one of the MPs was 23 years old. And I thought, for goodness sake, you know, you need to get out there and see a bit of the world, get some life experience, and then you can bring that into politics. But... Yeah, I have to say, I think what's interesting about Jalen Smith, age 18, and he looks pretty cool in this piece in the Sunday Times, uh, the New York Times. Sorry. He's got great shoes. He's got great shoes. Great He's got a Perhaps, I don't know, this is beginning to change my mind, possibly. I certainly think that we're absolutely, we need people in politics who have some life experience outside politics. And I, you know, I remember, I'm sure you do, in, in, when we were at university or college or wherever, the kind of uh, union polit- political nerds or whatever, um, and they certainly weren't the coolest people on campus. Well, this is it. Did we feel inspired by them? Because when you have, just when you are, think, uh, <laughs> nothing, just uh, ignorant and in the face of sort of too much nerdiness. But when you are faced by someone who is incredibly bright, has incredible purpose, um, it is quite an inspiring thing to see, isn't it? That's inspiring. I personally have always found career politicians incredibly frustrating. I've always been of the belief that if you're going to try and sit in a parliament and make decisions and make laws that impact the entire country, you should have some experience and some sort of working capacity outside of that building. It has always been baffling to me that we encourage that or vote those people. New Zealand has, our youngest ever was 23, she's still a member of parliament, she's 28 now, she is on track to be the leader of the Green Party in New Zealand and she has no, you know, that is all she's ever known is being a member of parliament. Last election we had an 18 year old who was trying to get in and there were all sorts of discussions that came with that because a photo emerged from his past which was just two years ago of (laughs) him, exactly, in a in a Hitler outfit and everyone was up in arms about it but then on the same one hand everyone was saying well he was only 16 at the time and 15, 16 we all make terrible decisions but now you're 18 trying to get into parliament so Mm. it's What I quite like though is that there's clearly there seems to me a slight difference between the career parliament that we've all met who are 18 and you just say please don't make me sit next to you at a dinner party Um, and and Jalen Smith because He's great I'm encouraged by him because he wants to get a supermarket in town he wants to have the police department operating 24 hours a day I mean that's a kind of a minimum isn't it I mean he wants to patch up streets these are things which are relevant to voters there's only about a 1, thousand, eighteen hundred people in that town as well, though. To be fair, you know, the decisions he's making are not affecting the entire of the United States. I think the level of power you have has to be taken into account. We need to sort of see this. Do we need to sort of like keep an eye on Mr. Smith and see whether we're looking at the next, the next? I sort of hope not, actually. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's actually, but what, I'm, what oh. I mean is, what I hope, I hope that he does a really good job in Earl and and really as you say does the kind of practical things like the 24 hour police mm. I'd quite like that I have to say if you get burgled in the middle of the night I think or something. in London we'd quite like this yeah, even, even in London or whatever but I like the idea of some young uh, African American going in energising it doing a good job saying after I don't know 5-10 years this is what I've achieved 
actually, now I'm going to do something else. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to start my own business instead of going into the swamp of Washington or something. You know, let's flip it the other way around, perhaps. Perhaps you do your political stuff early on and then you go in and get life experience. And then you can go and become the president. Yeah, afterwards. Get that (laughs) chunk of life experience in the middle that is outside of politics. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. I'm glad you weren't hoping for failure there, Simon. No, no. Good luck to him. Good luck to him. Finally, Botticelli. Well, finally, for the moment. Botticelli, Da Vinci, Michelangelo. Puccini, Verdi, Donizetti. It must be tough growing up Italian, surrounded by culture that makes the world swoon. Well, the Italian government has sought to make it accessible to all, to open the country's seemingly unending source of arts to everybody. So it created a thing called It's Art. It's an online platform. And it's been a massive flop. It cost more than 7 million euros last year, but brought in a mere 140,000 subscribers. So what was wrong with with its art? Well, a little earlier, I spoke to our culture editor, Chiara Rimella, herself an Italian, and I did ask her what went wrong for its art. It's a shame, but then I think we could kind of see it coming um, because a lot of the times these types of initiatives from sponsored by the Ministry of Culture tend to miss the mark in terms of really engaging with contemporary audiences and really achieving their initial aim, which was to broaden audiences as opposed to constantly just hit the same types of people who are already into the types of things. So its art was supposed to be this platform about the beauty of Italian culture, but it tended to focus on the more established aspects of it, let's say, you know, your opera, your big historical documentaries on the likes of Pompeii or historical kind of mansions and cultural houses or documentaries on kind of long-established singer-songwriters, you know, the kinds of things that you're... 50 plus audience is very well versed in but also the kinds of things that that kind of audience already has access to frequently on state broadcaster programming or they actually do go to the opera themselves it really didn't rack up that many uh, subscribers and it was really a massive flop it cost in the in the order of the dozens of millions and it, it really racked up about a couple of hundred thousand euros, which is quite shocking. It's, I mean, if you look at the, the website now, it has sort of like opera and... So, oh, look, there's a, there's a picture of the opera. Art, it has uh, The Birth of Venus by Botticelli. Uh, music, it has, uh, you know, a picture of an opera singer. And it's one of those things that actually, if you and I were to, t- to sit down for about five minutes and um, imagine what a kind of like a best of compilation website would be... It's great if you're someone like me or if you're a teacher who's trying to introduce your students to, I don't know, Morricone or something like that. But did it know what it wanted to be at the start or did it or you know, did it did it really have a sense of purpose? Well, I think that that's the problem. I think that too much of the public programming of Italian state-sponsored culture is so focused on this idea of the vestiges of the past. It's something that I've spoken about a lot of times. I feel like a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the contemporary programming, the forward-looking programming, comes down to independent art spaces frequently, more so than the large museums. There have been efforts to broaden audiences. You know, Franceschini, who was the minister at the time when this was launched, to his credit, he he appointed lots of foreign directors to historic venerated cultural institutions around Italy and that was considered something 
completely out of the ordinary when it happened and quite revolutionary. And it did manage actually to bring up to date a lot of these institutions. But I think that there is an entrenched thinking that, you know, the Renaissance and the historic power of this, you know, venerated cultural heritage is so precious that it's very hard to move it forward. Sometimes there's that burdens, like the burden of having so much heritage really does, I think, weigh down Italian cultural institutions. That's its trouble, isn't it? Italian culture is enormous. But I wonder whether this is actually quite a good access for young people into more traditional art forms. Italian music is amazingly famous, but perhaps not in the more in in various parts of Italian culture. So, do you think if this were repurposed as a kind of heritage website, then it might work, or do you think it just needs to be got rid of completely? I don't know if I don't know if it can be salvaged without deciding what it needs to do. There is plenty of amazing archival material, unfortunately, for free on <laughs> Rai Play, which is or, our. Or, st- for, yeah. or fortunately for us, or fortunately for those who want to, to to see it. But I think that the state broadcaster can, you know, play that role for Italian culture, and I think it's just about time to, that we actually did have. Netflix of culture that wasn't forward that wasn't backwards looking but was actually forward looking and presenting current Italianness to the world because you know we have Maniskin that have done really well internationally but there's plenty more that I think is waiting to be discovered Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed uh, to Chiara Rimella for, for, for talking about that. Now, while we were listening to that, you went for a trip around Pompeii, Lizette, I sh- I sure did. courtesy of this website. How was it? It was OK. I mean, it's just like at that point, it's just like what it's just like watching a YouTube video, isn't it? Which is what first inspires you sometimes to go to the actual place and explore it in person and have the real life experience. Which and you is, said this was great for teachers when you were watching it. Well, I do think it, I mean, it reminds me, my sister is a history teacher and a classics teacher, and that's definitely the sort of stuff she talks and teaches her students about, is all of that rich history in, in Italy, and all of that would be a phenomenal what, I, what I found so funny about Chiara saying, it's the wrong kind of art that's relevant, you know, it's, it's yeah. irrelevant. I mean, oh, to have that problem that the Italians have, that we have too much art, we don't know what to do with it. As I was reading about it, it reminded me of the United Kingdom having a go, not necessarily at having a website displaying wonderful elements of cultural heritage, but does anybody remember the festival of Brexit? It was, it was this, I don't think it was supposed to, ended up, it wasn't supposed to be called that, but everyone did. It was unboxed, wasn't it? And it was supposed to be a great f- celebration of, um, I think it was culture, science, technology, everything that the, 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 the Brits can, you know, thump their tubs about. But the fact is, I, I wonder, Simon, if the whole issue of this is that when the government tells you what kind of culture we should be celebrating... Everybody sort of slightly goes, no thanks, I'll do it myself. I think that's a problem. I think partly uh, uh, with with um, with this art, its art thing, as, as Chiara said, it is a government initiative. I mean, just looking at it, I thought it looked good. Uh, but to me, it's neither has that really mass appeal, nor did it look kind of upmarket enough for your real opera and art buff. But yeah, I think I think certainly anything the government, when the government tries to entertain you, it's not a good idea. You can just imagine the the, the brainstorming session in Absolutely. there. That, you know, every, the world's most uninspired uh, policy wonks sitting there Ticking going, Would, wouldn't it be great and, if we had some opera on an yeah, Italian absolutely. website? Well, I remember, I, like uh, perhaps you do as well, the Millennium Dome, you know, which was another example of the, the as somebody said, who would want to go to a party that the government is inviting you to? And it was compared, uh, this was our celebration for the year 2000, compared to this, the old Soviet people's palaces of rest and culture, <laughs> in that they created this big thing, 
used masses of PVC. It's probably unbelievably unsustainable. And of course, then they thought, well, what are we going to put in it? And they hadn't thought about it. So again, government committees in Whitehall, civil servants decided what what art, what culture should go in it. And uh, and it was roundly criticised for that. I remember it being called Mandelson's Folly. That's right. That, exactly. was a, that was a nickname for it. Thank you so much. Uh, let's move on finally to our letter from New York City. Here's our correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Last week, I spoke about George Santos. Santos is the United States representative for New York's 3rd Congressional District. He's been in the headlines recently because of the extraordinary web of deception he has spun. Santos lied his way into Congress by telling the press and public profound porkies about his family background, employment history, philanthropic activities, education and more. One of the many remarkable aspects of Santosgate was the silence of Republican leaders in the face of his lying. Not one national Republican leader called Santos out after his fabrications began to be revealed. But this week, a thin ray of integrity cut through the dark night of political tribalism. George Santos's campaign last year was a campaign of deceit, lies and fabrication. His lies were not mere fibs. He disgraced the House of Representatives. He has no place in the Nassau County Republican Committee, nor should he serve in public service, nor as an elected official. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. Today, on behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation. Santos was denounced by the leadership of the Nassau County Republican Committee. This is important because most of the district Santos represents is in Nassau County. The committee has even said they're going to redirect constituent calls in Santos's district to Anthony Despacito, the Republican representative from the neighbouring 4th Congressional District. The Nassau County Party chairman admitted his party should have vetted Santos more rigorously before endorsing him. But the chairman also passed the buck onto the Queen's Republican Party. He said they should have caught Santos because he's from Queen's. Santos's lies are interesting in part because they're so far-fetched and wide-ranging. I don't have time to recount their details here, but I highly recommend looking up his list of fabrications for yourself. Aside from the sensational nature of his lies, Santos is interesting because he's a kind of litmus test of how far US democracy has strayed outside of a remotely sensible ethical framework. It's difficult to think of another industry so important to people's well-being that would tolerate a practitioner exhibiting such a high level of deception. What would happen if an airline pilot or a doctor had been caught lying this much? I'd hope that in both cases there'd be some kind of mechanism for automatic dismissal. You might say the responsibilities of a politician aren't quite as critical as pilots or doctors or that they're critical in a different way. But it's still a really important job, 
and a person's levels of basic honesty and integrity are directly and strongly related to their ability to execute it. So it seems insane that there's a chance Santos will serve a full two-year term as a congressional representative. He faces enormous challenges. Aside from the condemnation of the Nassau County Republicans, Santos is the subject of two formal congressional ethics complaints as of writing. In addition to this, his colleague from Long Island, Anthony Despacito, has said he will not associate with Santos in Congress and that he's going to encourage other representatives to reject Santos. And that's just the pressure from within Congress. Santos is also currently the subject of inquiries by federal and local prosecutors over whether his actions warrant criminal charges. And that's just in the US. Brazilian law enforcement officials have also said they're reviving fraud charges against Santos connected to a 2008 incident involving a stolen checkbook. And yet, it's in the national Republican leadership's short-term interest to keep Santos in position. Because his dismissal would trigger a special election the party may well lose, and that would reduce their already slim majority in the House. And so we enter a phase in George Santos's career that will be a kind of test of how much pressure he can withstand before he gives up a position he so badly wants for reasons that perhaps only he and God will ever know. I'm going to try to avoid writing about him next week, again. But I'm afraid I can't make any promises. That was our New York Radio correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan there. And that's all we have time for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists, Lizette Raymer and Simon Brook. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parminchurin. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton, with editing assistance from Sarah Nichol. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.